So, Rachel. What's up, Miles? Franklin Richards. Nope. What do you mean, nope? Gotta draw the line somewhere. Franklin Richards is a bottomless pit of time paradoxes. I mean, he makes the Summers kids look straightforward. I know there's the Days of Future Present thing and the Heroes Reborn thing. Miles, look, that kid rewrites reality like every third weekend. Oh, come on. That's not going to happen for ages. He's just a cute kid with dream powers. Oh, he's got the other powers. Then why doesn't he use them? Well, because after artificially aging himself into adulthood, he realized he couldn't control the full range of his powers because he was basically a kid in an adult body. So he aged himself back down in the process, installing artificial dampeners to prevent him from accessing the reality warping powers until he was mature enough. What? Rachel Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 74 of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. And welcome back, Miles. It is really good to have you back in the studio. Thanks. It is good to be back. PAX Prime was a lot of fun, but it was also freaking exhausting. And uh, for what it's worth, I do not recommend getting sick halfway through working a con. It's a bad plan. So speaking of conventions, I know I mentioned this last episode, but we are going to be at Rose City Comic Con. And we're going to be tabling. We've got some really cool stuff going on. That is September 9th. 19th and 20th in Portland, Oregon, and we really, really hope to see you guys. So we're going to have a table there where we're going to be selling merch, you know, t-shirts, buttons, uh, mutants. The zine. We're finally debuting the Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, and also we made a zine about it. Yes, we did. I don't um, know if that's actually going to be the title. I kind of feel like it should be. Something, <laughs> maybe. Something, something long and awkward. Mm-hmm. Like X-Men itself. And we're also going to be on some panels. I'm going to be on two with Rachel, and Rachel will be on three more on top of that. Right. But the big one, the important one, the one that we want to talk to you guys about is going to be at five o'clock on Saturday. Saturday. And that is Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men Live. We are doing a live episode for the first time. Episode 76 is going to be recorded live as a panel at Rose City Comic Con. It's going to be the two of us. We have this unbelievably awesome lineup of surprise guests who I really want to tell you about. But you have to actually come see or wait for the episode to go up a week later. Yeah, it's going to be pretty rad. I got to admit, I'm a little terrified. I mean, you're an old hand at this, uh, you know, being in front of a bunch of people and telling them about things. I've never really done that. I mean, the listeners don't even know if I'm a real person aside from the YouTube reviews. Oh, they know. They do? They know. They know everything. They, it's the internet, man. Oh, that's true. So, yes, you should come see us there. Speaking of being real people, even if you can't come to the panel, we're going to be in Artist's Alley at table 09, like the letter 09, all weekend. And actually, while you're visiting people on the site, you should totally go see the Kaiju Cast booth, our producer Kyle's podcast. And it's going to be super, super cool. It's actually going to be way cooler than our booth. So you should go check that out, too. Yes, indeed. Now, what we also have, aside from our stuff at Rose City itself, is our Rose City official meetup after party thing. Now, some of you guys might have come to the one at Emerald City Comic Con, which was amazing and you were amazing and you came out in force. And then a lot of you got in touch with us and said, well, you know, we really wish that you'd done something that wasn't at the convention. So those of us who couldn't make it to the show could have come. And also maybe it could have been all ages. And we listened. And so this time around at Rose City Comic Con, we are doing an offsite after hours meetup. It is at the Steep and Thorny Way to Heaven, which is an amazing alternative arts and performance venue in Portland run by some friends of ours. That's going to be Saturday night from 8 to 11. It is all ages cosplay encouraged and details are on our website. Yes, details for that party, our stuff at Rose City Comic Con itself. Go to the website. It will tell you many things. Come to everything. And yeah, as Miles mentioned, I have five panels. So if you just sort of wander into random panel rooms, you'll probably find me somewhere. Odds are pretty even. Yeah, it's true. So all of that out of the way, what are we talking about this time, Rachel? Well, this week we are breaking off from the main series we've been covering and we're going to cover the Fantastic Four versus X-Men miniseries. So this was in 87. And actually, this era is a really big time for miniseries. We have Fantastic Four versus X-Men. We have X-Men and the Avengers. We have Fallen Angels. We're going to be getting to all of those. But there were basically a ton of miniseries going on that involved the X-Men. Yeah, X-Men was outselling pretty much every other book that Marvel was doing by a margin of about three to one at this point. So they were tying them in and crossing them over all over the place. Yes, mutants were very marketable. Ironic as they fall into more and more disregard within the actual Marvel Universe proper. It's true. So, yeah, this miniseries, it's a four-issue miniseries, written by Chris Claremont, of course, because he was writing almost everything X-Men-wise, and the artist is a dude named John Bogdanov. We've seen him before with some of the Power Pack stuff we've looked at. He was the longtime artist on Power Pack, written by Louise Simonson. He's a frequent collaborator with Simonson. Didn't they do a bunch of Superman together, too? Yeah, they did later on when Simonson went to DC for Marvel. And interestingly enough, Bogdanov's son is actually named Cal L, so apparently he really likes Superman. That is a choice that you can make. It totally is. But his art is really good. It's super expressive. It's super emotional. Oh, man, we found this great quote from Anne Nascenti, with which I completely agree, which is that he, quote, draws the best hugs in the biz. Yeah, she's not wrong. 
So yes, as far as context of what's going on here, we're actually picking up right after our last Uncanny X-Men episode where we finished with number 219 when Havoc joins. So we've got sort of a weird X-Men lineup. And at this point, they're all on Muir Island. Some of them were still in New York at the end of 219, but they've all headed and consolidated on Muir Island. They're all gathered together. The team right now is Storm, Wolverine, Havoc, Rogue, Psylocke, Longshot, Dazzler, and Magneto. And then there are three auxiliary members who are sort of out of commission at the moment. And those are Shadowcat, Colossus, and Nightcrawler. They were varying degrees of taken out during the Mutant Massacre crossover that happened recently when the Marauders killed a bunch of Morlocks. Specifically, Shadowcat is sort of discorporating. She's slowly disintegrating as her molecules drift away from each other. And that's actually going to be the focus of this crossover. Colossus is paralyzed and Nightcrawler is comatose. And those are important things as well, but less relevant to this particular series. So what about the Fantastic Four side? This is one of those places where my knowledge of the Marvel Universe drops off very sharply. My Fantastic Four frame of reference is very, very limited. What's happening with them? The original team's together at this point. Yeah, so back in the first Secret Wars, Ben Grimm, the Thing, actually left the team and went to do stuff in space for a while. He stayed on Battleworld, didn't he? Yeah, and then he did some other stuff. But She-Hulk took his place on the team for a while. Now, at this point, she's left. She's a member of the Avengers. The Thing is back on the team. And you know what? I'm sure pretty much everybody knows about the Fantastic Four, but on the off chance we have some listeners who don't, these are four people who were uh, hit by cosmic rays during a space mission, and we're going to be getting more to the details of that as we cover the issues in question, and they developed extraordinary powers. So there's Mr. Fantastic, Reed Richards, and he is stretchy. He is super, super, super stretchy. That's his deal. I love that one of the most important characters in the Marvel Universe, his power is that he's stretchy. I think that's really rad. He's also really, really smart. I think he's officially like the smartest person in the Marvel Universe, or somewhere very high up there. He's certainly up there, yeah. And then there is Susan Storm. Susan Richards at this point. She's married to Reed Richards, and she is the Invisible Woman. She can turn herself invisible, and she can also do stuff with force fields, which is probably a lot more powerful and important at this point. Yeah, she's got this invisibility field that kind of plays out like telekinesis in practice. It's pretty much telekinesis, yeah. And then we have Johnny Storm, her younger brother. He's the Human Torch. Not the same Human Torch that was around during the Golden Age. He was kind of a robot, long story. That Human Torch was. Johnny Storm is not a robot as far as we know. I guess he could be. Eh, You know, retcons can happen. Uh, I mean, scrolls are a big thing for the Fantastic Four, so, you know. Oh, yeah. And Johnny Storm can set himself on fire and fly, because apparently when you're on fire, you can fly. You know, that's just physics right there. he rises. I I have no... I'm sure there's an incontinuity explanation for that. We should mention at this point that there is actually a podcast that's all about the Fantastic Four. It's called the Fantasticast. We'll link to that. You should ask them these questions, because this is their specialty. And then the final member of the Fantastic Four at this point is Ben Grimm, the Thing, and he is basically made out of orange rock. He is super strong. He is not super happy about it. Yeah. So there are really only a couple of bits of continuity that are going to be relevant to this series, that being Fantastic Four versus X-Men, which are, number one, Reed and Sue have a young son. That's Franklin Richards. Now, we've seen him before when the Power Pack has showed up. He's very small. He's probably about, I don't know, what do you think, four years old or so at this point? I don't know. He's just sort of generic Moppet age. He's maybe somewhere between like four and six, I think. Yeah. And he's a mutant. He has the powers. Well, he's got a lot of powers. So many powers. Oh, my God. So I started to write a cold open about him and I was looking up all of his powers and his continuity. And like halfway through, it was just like, nope. Nope, I'm not even going to go there. Like, we could have this whole podcast, like all 74 episodes could be Rachel and Miles try futilely to explain Franklin Richards. We would just descend into madness eventually. It would just be us, like, hooting and screeching and tearing out our faces, and it would be bad. Yeah, this child, oh my god. But right now, his powers are fairly straightforward. Right, right now, when he's asleep, he can sort of astrally project and go elsewhere. I mean, pretty much wherever he wants, as near as I can tell. And he also sometimes has these prophetic dreams. He calls them his special dreams, and they are usually not terribly literal, but they kind of show him what's going to happen, good or bad, in the future. And because he's somewhere between four to six years old, we will refrain from making any jokes about the term special dreams and would request that you do the same in the comments. Yes, yes, that's true indeed. Okay, so that's thing number one. Thing number two is a little bit less important, but still wait, bears. Wait, thing? I mean, yes. but you're, you got to be careful about okay, that. Okay, so man. I guess that makes this thing number three that's a little bit less relevant than Franklin, and certainly less relevant than Ben Grimm. And that is that Johnny Storm, the Human Torch, is currently in a relationship with the Thing's ex, a woman named Alicia Masters. Except it's not a woman named Alicia Masters. It's a scroll pretending to be a woman named Alicia Masters. Yeah, I mean, we're not going to find out about the scroll thing for a while, and it doesn't come up here, but that is indeed the case because comics. So with that, let's jump into Fantastic Four versus X-Men number one. Yeah. Before we dive into the story, can we talk about these covers for a minute? Because they are amazing. Every single one of them features some variation on one or the other of the teams completely slaughtered. I mean, okay, there's one scene that echoes that, and we'll get to that in a moment. But by and large, these covers are just lies. 
they're lies, but the story rests pretty heavily on dire premonitions. So I feel like they're kind of tonally appropriate, even if they're not, you know, direct projections. And I kind of miss covers like that, ones that are just sort of ridiculous and over the top and extreme examples of sort of what you're going to find tonally or something alluded to within the book, where it's just kind of, again, what's like, does this actually reflect the content? Nah. So the way you can find out is it says not a hoax, not an imaginary story. Then you can always believe that. But that's just not true because they've done those and then it's like, oh, but it turns out it's just a dream. And that especially happens with Franklin Richards stories like that happened with the one where he and Aunt May fought Galactus. That is canon in my heart, Rachel, and nothing will ever change that. I mean, it's canon that there was a dream about it. No, it was real. I don't mean even in the Marvel Universe real. I mean, in real life real in the world in which we live. It happened. You live in a magical universe, Miles. I live in the real universe. I'm sure that's what Reed Richards tells himself every day. Yeah, well. So we start out actually with one of the few examples of that kind of bombastic, over-the-top doom and gloom as we awaken in the land of lost hope. Where Reed Richards has just killed all of the X-Men and Sue Storm, Sue Richards' wife. Yeah, and so Franklin, who's there, is, you know, in tears, of course, and he just confronts his father. Daddy, you killed them all. It was logical, Franklin. It was necessary. How could you know? How could you be certain? I'm a scientist, son. I'm always certain. God, why do I imagine Reed Richards is always talking like George Tirebiter from Firesign Theater? (laughs) I don't know, but now I'm going to. I really like this exchange right here because it sets up kind of the central philosophical conflict of the entire story, which is Reed Richards and his confidence in his own scientific background, his confidence in his own work and his own ethics. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But first, Reed just sort of breaks away from Franklin. He climbs up an altar and there is a book that looks like it's going to be some kind of horrible arcane text at the top. But it's actually labeled Reed Richards Journal, State University. And Franklin's like, no, don't open the book. It'll ruin everything. And Reed does and starts tearing off his clothes and puts on a metal mask and turns into Dr. Doom. Wow, that's not symbolic. Not even a little bit. I feel like we should take a second here and talk about Dr. Doom because, you know, he's come up a lot on the podcast and something I think we've brought up in passing but probably should in more depth is mention that he is basically a Fantastic Four villain who gets loaned out to other books occasionally. Yeah. I mean, that being said, I do fully believe he's the greatest villain in the Marvel Universe. You know, considering that Magneto is not exactly a villain, Dr. Doom totally is. He's awesome. Not necessarily the most powerful, but probably the best. Oh, yeah. And so his deal is that he was an old college buddy of Mr. Fantastic, Reed Richards, and they were rivals. I mean, Doom was the main one who was a rival. Mr. Fantastic was like, hey, bro, we're science dudes. Let's just be awesome together. And Doom was like, you have no idea. You you just have no clue, man. I'm going to take you down. And Reed's like, friendly competition. Exactly. It's like when you have two cats and one of them really wants to be friends with the other. and The other one just sort of hisses and growls and the first one doesn't care. Or thinks it's playing. Or thinks it's playing. Yeah. And so, yeah, uh, this all continued with the status quo throughout much of their college career. Until one day, Dr. Doom did an experiment, really long story, but it ended up blowing up in his face, and Reed Richards had said, hey, don't do that, it's going to blow up in your face. That scarred his literal face, and he blamed Reed Richards for it, and that's where he started his vendetta against Richards for, like, the rest of the Marvel Universe. And also when he started dressing like an awesome medieval robot. Yeah, and, you know, learned some more sorcery, because his mother was in hell. It's, like I said, a very long story. Dr. Doom is amazing. He is. Dr. Doom is so great. But you know who else is great? Franklin Richards. And it turns out this is all Franklin Richards having a dream because he wakes up in his creepy, creepy bedroom. I think his bedroom is awesome. What's creepy about it? Okay, so some of his bedroom is awesome. So he has this typical kid room. It's got a lot of like pictures on the walls and stuff. It's got a We Love You Franklin picture signed by the entire Powers family, which I think is really sweet. And I think it's maybe because they figured out that his actual family is horribly neglectful. Yeah, as we've seen in the past, like in the Mutant Massacre tie-ins, Franklin Richards hangs out with the Power Pack a whole lot well, and he, their he parents. He lived with them for a while when he, he did, thought yeah. his whole family One of the many times he thought his whole family was dead because they just neglected to let him know otherwise. I'm so glad we didn't grow up in the Marvel Universe. Oh my god, Reed Richards is the worst parent in the Marvel Universe, probably, maybe? Uh, Sometimes he is, sometimes he's great. There are a lot of really bad parents in the Marvel Universe, but Reed is pretty consistently terrible. So the other things Franklin has on his wall are a bunch of like little kid drawings, and one of them is of Friday, who's the Power Packs spaceship friend. And it's labeled Friday, spelled F-W-I-D-A-Y. Friday. Which makes sense as a little kid's mispronunciation, but you wouldn't write it out that way if you're a little kid. And what it reads to me as, and actually a lot of what Franklin does and a lot of Franklin's mannerisms read to me as, is like this kid being like, okay, how do I behave like a normal human child? Don't look closer. Look at my adorable misspellings. Behold, I am a human meat child and nothing more. Right? And see, having done that kind of thing as a kid upon occasion, I- Wait, you said you were a human meat child? No, but I did, like, try to deliberately do things that I thought were, like, things kids my age were supposed to do based on some weird nebulous outside view of that. 
Like, I kind of get that, but I also wasn't functionally omnipotent, and that kind of changes the playing field. Franklin is interesting, and he may or may not actually, like, control the entire Marvel Universe. I think we talked about this at some length in another episode when we were talking about why Artie and Leech don't age. Oh, yeah, there's a theory that sort of he runs everything, and he just gets to stay a kid forever with his awesome family having awesome adventures. Yeah, and that's why people keep on coming back from the dead, and that's why people age at different rates, that it's relative to how important they are to him or what age he sort of impresses on them. That's super creepy and kind of works a lot. Franklin Richards is kind of terrifying, but he's also kind of great. And so he's had this horrible nightmare about his father. He's completely freaked out and he goes and runs to try to find his dad, who, of course, is working in his lab because that is all Reed Richards ever does. And so Reed Richards is like, oh, a terrible dream. That's nice, son. Go tell your mother. I have to do this science stuff over here. Because, again, Reed is a bad parent. So he doesn't even say go tell your mother. He's like, Sue, your child is having child needs. Come attend to them. (laughs) Right. And Sue, to her credit, does, because she, unlike Reed, is a truly awesome parent. So Sue is comforting Franklin, and she gets out this old tea set that was packed away to make some tea for them and, you know, have a nice relaxing middle of the night. Or so she thinks, because in the process of unpacking, she comes across a musty tome left unopened for decades. A book that holds within it the potential to shake the foundations of the very universe itself. That is Reed Richards Journal, State University. Subtitle, probably the Necronomicon. <laughs> Man, this is going to be a running theme, and Franklin is horrified. Meanwhile, on Muir Island, the X-Men are facing problems of their own. Namely, one of their team is in the process of rapidly discorporating. Yeah, when we mentioned before that Kitty Pride had been injured severely in the mutant massacre and has been drifting apart ever since, I mean, it's getting really bad. It's very clear that within probably the next couple of days at this point, she's going to die. They have her in this kind of containment tube thing to try to hold her together, and Psylocke, the X-Men's telepath, has been trying to help her, you know, use her own willpower to do so. Well, and also just hold her mind together, because it's also diffusing along with the molecules of her body. Yeah, but it's clearly a losing battle, and no matter what they do, unless something changes, Kitty's a goner. If only there were a super scientist somewhere in the Marvel Universe who had developed a device that might be able to save her. Oh, wait. And so Magneto calls in and says, hey guys, I just heard that Reed Richards has this device which basically does exactly what we need. We should go talk to him and see if we can save Kitty's life. How did he just find that out? Did Richards just, you know, release a paper? Development of a device to reconsolidate discorporated, you know, phasing mutants that I just happened to come up with for no particularly plot-relevant reasons in my copious free time. I don't know. Maybe Magneto's on ARPANET and he's dealing with some, like, early BBSs and he keeps track of what other superheroes and villains are up to. Wouldn't his powers kind of basically destroy old computers and disks? Uh, you know, he's got a lot of control. He's good. He's I good. Yes. Anyway, as this conversation is happening, Longshot and Dazzler are heading back to Muir Island from the mainland. Longshot is intrigued by the idea of an ocean, but they also rescue a shipwrecked sailor. This is a guy who we saw very briefly in the previous arc of Uncanny X-Men, looking sort of vaguely sinister and smug, and his ship wrecks, and they find him, and they bring him back to Muir Island. And this is going to be a big deal. So while the X-Men are on Muir Island, and while the Fantastic Four are doing their thing in the Baxter Building, their headquarters... Miles! What? No, 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 not doing that thing. That thing is in this next scene I'm going to describe. So he, along with Jennifer Walters, She-Hulk, are both in the library. And She-Hulk's actually... Wait, so Jennifer Walters is doing their thing? No, no, no. She did Juggernaut once, but it turned out there was like a clone or something. It's a long story. Wait, what? The point is, She-Hulk... That was a Chuck Austin thing, wasn't it? Not Thing. I mean, storyline. Why would your name be Thing? It makes everything so hard to describe. So... Ben Grimm, the member of the Fantastic Four known as The Thing, and She-Hulk are in a library. And She-Hulk, who is a lawyer when she's not, you know, punching things. Wait, they're doing it in the library? I'm just going to drop this thread, dude. (laughs) She-Hulk is looking into uh, researching a legal case for her old school. Yeah, they are doing some kind of a benefit, a mock reenactment of the trial of Magneto, and she's playing the defense. And it's really interesting to see that coming up sort of out of context like that, because, yeah, it would be a really big deal legal precedent in the Marvel Universe, It It absolutely would be. That's something I like to examine, and I wish the Marvel Universe examined more, which is that your everyday normal stuff, like the practice of law, is going to be completely different. Even what your average person on the street thinks of as examples of law or technology or like social change or whatever is going to be totally different than our world. Well, and it's got to have fairly important legal precedents regarding superhuman stuff, because, for instance, it examines the trial. One of the things that comes up is the question of to what extent Magneto can be held accountable for actions committed before he was de-aged to a toddler. This is the kind of legal issue 
that you have to deal with in criminal law in the Marvel Universe. And, you know, people die and come back all the time and stuff like that. There's a blog called Law in the Multiverse. It's possible that they or someone else has examined this at some length. I'm going to look that up and see if I can find some stuff to drop in the as mentioned about it. But yeah, practicing law in the Marvel Universe has to be a fairly different experience from doing it here. Totally. And so while Jennifer Walters is looking stuff up for that, Ben Grimm is studying for getting recertified for his pilot's license because, you know, he was a test pilot. That's kind of how he got started in this whole Fantastic Four thing. And so he's trying to keep up his certificates. Well, license is plural. Yes. And so they meet up briefly and all of a sudden there's an explosion after they talk briefly about the ethics of defending Magneto and that sort of thing. And Ben Grimm, you know, doesn't believe that Magneto could possibly be a good guy. But conveniently, guess who happens to be around to help contain the explosion and pick things up? Right, because this building is exploding for reasons. And yeah, Magneto shows up and helps them hold the building together so it doesn't crush a bunch of people and do horrible damage. Which provides a great segue to, so I hear your teammate has developed this device that has the potential to save the life of this discorporating kid I'm responsible for. Yes, indeed, but I do want to focus on one more thing, which is that during this big struggle as She-Hulk and the Thing try to hold this building together, She-Hulk Lawyery clothes get totally ripped up and she's mostly naked by the end just wearing shreds of fabric. I bring this up mainly because, yes, this happens a lot in comic books, but this happens, like, a lot in this miniseries. Like, way more than you would expect. Yeah, we joke about, you know, the X-Men tropes drinking game, and we would recommend not adding this one to that unless you're reading the miniseries over an extended period of time, because we really don't want to be responsible for alcohol poisoning. Well, that being said, if you have a very strong liver or are listening to this in chapters, then for this episode, take a drink. So Magneto approaches the Fantastic Four after this, after basically proving himself to be the good guy, and asks for their help saving Kitty. They agree, but Reed is really troubled by this choice, and he's specifically troubled by the idea of testing out this machine he's never tried before, because the last time he did something like this on a large scale, I mean, that's basically what created the Fantastic Four. He was trying out this experimental rocket. He'd failed to account for one really, really critical thing, which is cosmic radiation, which in the Marvel Universe gives people superpowers instead of cancer. And I should also note that he also had been confronted by Sue after she found this mysterious book. We, the readers, don't know what that was about, but we're getting the impression that he got super messed up by it. And whatever Sue and Reed fought over, Reed is really troubled by it. God, this whole miniseries is basically a really extended, really interesting character study of Reed Richards. He's a character who's never really clicked for me again, just partially through lack of frame of reference. But I really, really enjoyed some of this. And early on on the flight, he asks Ben if Ben thinks that Reed is ruthless, to which Ben responds, Wrong question. Not ruthless. So much as certain. You're the most certain guy I ever met. You examine a problem from every conceivable angle, worry the blamed thing to death until you arrive at your conclusion. And because of all your work, you're absolutely certain that conclusion is the right one. And being right, you're prepared to do whatever's necessary to resolve the situation. I guess that's a kind of ruthlessness. But am I always right? Pretty much. Except for that time you conned me, Susie, and Johnny into riding your rocket with you by telling us how safe it was. That was a mistake, Stretch. And it was a doozy. Always wondered how a big brain like you could forget about something as basic as cosmic rays. Man, so the picture we get of Reed in this fascinates me because he's like this amazing perfect hybrid of Professor X and Cyclops in a lot of really interesting ways. He is this character who is arguably and regularly the villain of his own team and his own series. He is a morally complex and very, very morally gray hero as they come. You know, he trusts himself intellectually, absolutely, but personally very little. Yeah, he's really fascinating in that regard. And the series is a great look at that. So the Fantastic Four, accompanied by She-Hulk, make it to Muir Island and meet up with the X-Men. Reed examines Kitty all day just to see, hey, can my machine actually make her okay? Can it heal her? Can it help her not disintegrate? And comes out to report that sadly, no, no, it can't. He comes out and he just says he can't help her. He's not willing to use the machine untested like this. Yeah, and so we're seeing that kind of lack of confidence, that uncertainty that we've seen before, but now a teenage girl's life is on the line. And it's totally weird, because if he doesn't, like, the worst that will happen is that she'll die a day earlier. But he won't do it. He's just so shaken. And the X-Men are like, are you serious? You kind of have to. And Wolverine charges at him, claws out, and says, you save her, bub, or you die. Yeah, that works, Wolverine. Well, yeah, so it doesn't really. A lot of the more rational members of both teams try to break up the fight, it doesn't really work out so well. The fight does continue, and a couple important things happen. One is that the Human Torch, while aiming at Wolverine with his fire, Wolverine, who has a healing factor, accidentally wings Storm and damn near burns her arm off. Another is that Rogue absorbs the Thing, 
that's actually not really that important in the fight. It's just kind of a great moment. It is really cool because, you know, she kisses him while pulling him up into the air and gets a picture of who he is as a person, of all of the pain and nobility under his monstrous exterior. I kind of love the narration here. It's typical Claremont, you know, purple prose. She thought she'd be attacking a toad. Instead, she's touched the soul of a prince. And Franklin, who has the power to project himself astrally in his sleep, has been watching all of this in his dream form. He falls out of bed in New York and is able to tell Sue what's up. And Sue is still just torn up by whatever it is that she read in Reed's journal, which she expresses by going off into another room and extending her force field fast enough to burst off all her clothing. Take a drink. Yeah. Maybe take like a drink and a half because she just got like extra naked given the fact that her suit is made of unstable molecules and should be incredibly durable. So that nudity took some effort. So would she have to do that deliberately? Would that have to be an on-purpose move? Could she have done it unconsciously? Well, I think it was at least an on-purpose move by the creative team. Well. (laughs) And so, yeah, the fight does get broken up, but Reed won't really budge. He's like, no, I cannot do this. I don't think the machine is safe. I don't think it's going to work for Kitty's specific condition. She's too far gone. And the X-Men are furious and heartbroken. They're trying to come up with other solutions. You know, Rogue suggests, yeah, hell, I could just go absorb him. I'll get the knowledge. I'll run the machine. But Storm won't go for it. And I find this really interesting because Storm has been getting more and more ruthless over the last arc of X-Men, especially since the mutant massacre. I mean, the X-Men seem to be threatening to kill somebody left and right in this era. But here we see more of the old Storm we're familiar with, the sort of morally certain, morally upright Aurora Monroe. Luckily for the X-Men, and very luckily for Kitty, the matter is soon taken out of their hands by the sailor who Dazzler and Longshot rescued last issue. He wakes up in sickbay and immediately sprouts a bunch of robot parts, because surprise, surprise, he is a robot sailor sent by Doctor Doom to spy on Muir Island. Because why not? I love that sentence you just said, Rachel. I love it so much. Robot sailors. Yes. And so... Talk to your kids today. <laughs> are your kids robot sailors? Yes. Here, yes, here are they ways are. to find out. So, yeah, the robot sailor comes out of the sick bay after terrifying Sharon Friedlander, who's there, and basically delivers a holographic message from Dr. Doom himself. Doom can save Kitty. Doom has got a comparable device. He's gotten access to Richard's research. He can do it, and he's offering to do it for free. And this seems like a lot of trouble to just send that message. Can't he just call? Well, he mainly sent his robot sailor to spy on Muir Island because he'd heard about the mutant massacre and wanted to see if that was any kind of danger or threat to him or his country, Latveria. But, you know, since the robot sailor was there anyway, and he saw a chance to one-up Reed Richards, well, hell yeah, he was going to take it. Man, this is such a great Doom thing, because, yeah, that's totally Doom's motivation here. He's not really acting altruistically, or rather, he's acting altruistically, but entirely to show up Reed. Yeah. And I always love that about Dr. Doom. I mean, the dude is one of the smartest people in the world. He's a super scientist, and he's a sorcerer, and he rules his own country, and he's got a sweet metal robot suit, and he's also, like, immensely petty. Everything he does is to show that he's better than that fool Richards. Oh, God. So the X-Men are intrigued by this idea, and it's a little weird because I feel like this whole miniseries kind of ignores that the X-Men have significant history with Doctor Doom. It goes into the Fantastic Four's history with him, that he's a villain and they don't trust him, totally ignores the fact that he basically teamed up with Arcade to imprison the X-Men. He chrome-plated Storm when she wouldn't date him. That happened. That was a thing. I feel like if somebody says no, then you should just say, oh, okay, sorry, instead of chrome plating them. I am inclined to agree with you. That is is a fairly important, like, 101 principle of dating. This is like the nice guy stereotype taken to its illogical conclusion. Oh, Doom is not a nice guy, Miles. Doom would never take that moniker. He's sort of a different type of scary guy to date. Yes, he is. I wouldn't date him personally. Well, I wouldn't either, because you know it would turn out to be a Doom bot, and that's a whole other set of consent issues. Although that is actually related, perhaps, to why the book doesn't go into the X-Men and Doom's history, because there was a retcon later on that the Doom that the X-Men met was actually a Doom bot and not the real Doctor Doom. Had that happened by now, though? I think so. I'm not really clear. But regardless, so and the isn't, X-Men... Isn't Doom technically culpable for the actions of Doom bots? Eh, I don't know. I mean, there's that superhero, supervillain legal proceedings we were talking about. It's hard to say what precedents have been set. So anyway, at this point, you know, they decide they're going to trust Doom, but there's yet another fly in the ointment, and that is that Storm has been really severely injured. And so the X-Men bring her into the med bay, trying to, you know, save her life because she's collapsed at this point after this deal has been tentatively struck, after the Fantastic Four have said, no, don't do it, and the X-Men have said, you guys need to leave right now. And that means that Kitty is seeing what's going on. She's realizing that the X-Men are getting into fights with other superheroes, that they're trusting one of the greatest villains in the entire universe in order to save her, that it's all for her sake. And she thinks to herself, maybe it's time I took the decision out of their hands. 
So overall, this miniseries, I think, is much lighter in tone than the current arc of X-Men, but there's a lot of talk about this teenager killing herself throughout the whole thing, and I gotta say, I think it's handled in a pretty mature and good and okay fashion. It is. It's a lot of characters trying to figure out how to deal with this absolutely impossible set of circumstances, and each trying to balance what they want personally and what they feel like they need to do ethically, and what has the potential to, you know, destroy the universe or not. Speaking of ethics, the Fantastic Four are back at the Baxter building, and Reed is confronted by the other members of his team who've all gone through the journal, and what they found is really alarming. Now, we mentioned that the Fantastic Four got their powers in an accident. They were on an experimental spacecraft that Reed had designed. Ben was supposed to be the pilot. I think Sue and Johnny just kind of came along because, you know, you can totally throw another couple people on your spacecraft. It's not like the weight of cargo is calibrated to the ounce or anything like that, right? Uh, No, I mean, Reed is a scientist. I feel like he did science at it, and it was fine. So they go into space, they get hit with cosmic rays, it's supposedly an accident that gives them the superpowers they end up getting from this. Now, the College Journal of Reads that they found presents a very different story. Reed writes about the rise of more and more supervillains, and at the end of this, you know, mentions, and while it is logical to assume some similar beings will devote their energies to pro-social activities, that process might well be facilitated by a person or group who would serve as both inspiration and example to the rest. And he talks about how the genetic structure of the four of them is such that, according to his calculations, that dosage of cosmic rays would in fact grant them superpowers, allowing them to be that example. Basically, what's in this book, what's in this journal, implies that Reed Richards set this whole gamma ray thing up deliberately to create the Fantastic Four, to mutate them all into their current forms. Wow. That's kind of a major betrayal, a little bit, there. Yeah, well, especially to do that and then not tell them until the present day, years later. Right, and again, you know, this takes me back to sort of read as this Charles Xavier figure who makes these massive decisions, crosses these major moral lines affecting other people out of just hubris and his own just intense moral certitude. Right. Now, speaking of people without moral certitude, the X-Men on Muir Island are going back and forth on whether or not they're going to trust Doom, on whether it's worth it to dance with a devil to save one of their own. And they conclude, as they must, because Excalibur is going to be starting fairly soon and she's got to be on the team, that the answer is yes. Yeah, so they decide to head out to Latveria, stuck in the Middle Ages but with awesome robots home of Victor Von Doom himself. If you lived here, you'd be a Doombot by now. (laughs) That's kind of awesome. I want that on a t-shirt. Right? You know, Doom gets to work straight off, but first he gets to work healing Storm because her arm is, you know, mostly burned to a crisp, and he uses this thing called his bio-enhancer to heal her, basically bragging about how normal medicine could never heal the scars or even restore full function to uh, her arm, but his machine is super amazing and it totally can. Doom is not an upstanding member of the scientific community. I bet he never publishes. And in fact, Psylocke actually mentions that it super sucks that he didn't release that information to the scientific community because thousands of lives of burn victims could have been saved, and he just doesn't care. Meanwhile, the other X-Men are experiencing the wonders of scenic Latveria. Rogue goes out clothing shopping, but violates some kind of airspace law on her way back and is attacked by Doombots who destroy her new outfit. Take a drink. Yes, indeed. And I love this part because Havoc and Dazzler are hanging out on, you know, the parapets of Castle Doom. And uh, you see what's going on. They're like, crap, we got to save Rogue. And so they start zapping all the Doom robots from afar. And we see a lot of their rivalry. Basically, every time there's a fight, they sort of have this contest to see who's more awesome in fighting. They're very much the Legolas and Gimli of the X-Men at this point. It's not a great comparison because one of them is basically a laser and the other one's basically a bomb. Here's another question. What do we call these robots? Because they're robots that belong to Doom, but they're not Doombots. They're not robot Dooms. So they're not Doombots. They could be Doomsbots, like Doomsbots. Doomsbots? I feel like that's a little bit too close. Uh, how about Latveri Androids? Latveri Androids? I like that. Yeah, I mean, they're not technically androids, but it's so no, sonorous. It just rolls off the tongue. Meanwhile, unfortunately, Kitty has decided that this is too great a trade-off. She's decided she is going to take matters into her own hands, and with sort of one last burst of strength, she phases herself out of the containment unit that's holding her together, and she goes out a window onto a ledge to go basically wait to dissipate. Doubt it'll hurt. Hope it's quick. Please, God, don't be mad. Don't let my folks and friends be sad. This is for the best. Oh, Kitty. It is so sad. Like, okay, so Kitty's not really in this series as much as you would think, given that, you know, she's the central plot premise of it. No, she's basically a MacGuffin. But when she is, Claremont continues to have her voice down. She is such a believable teenage girl, such a believable person, and so sympathetic. 
And that really gives this plot a lot of poignancy, knowing that this teenage girl, whether she actually is going to die or not, definitely thinks that she is. And I actually, I mean, I called her a MacGuffin, and that's not entirely accurate, because one of the things I really like about this series is despite the fact that her actions don't really impact the greater plot, she does retain agency, and that's really, really important for her as a character, and it's something that I think is a really important sort of backbeat to the entire series and the events going on around her. Absolutely. And so as she's out here waiting to die as the sun comes up, the dream form of Franklin Richards, remember he can astrally project when he's asleep, appears and sees what's going on. Now, he can't really be heard by people when he's dream projecting, when he's in his astral form, but nonetheless, he does his best just to somehow get through to Kitty to convince her to not kill herself. And he gives this whole poignant speech, and somehow he does manage to get through And the next time we see her, she's back in the containment tube and hugging his astral form through the tube. You'd think his astral form could just go in and hug her there. Well, I'm not really sure, but it is a really powerful set of images because as he's just saying, don't go, don't go, don't go, as he's collapsed on this ledge watching her, we just cut to a panel of her face, a close up on her face, just looking sad, looking sympathetic. And man, Bogdanov is so good at evoking that kind of subtlety of emotion. It's wonderful. And from there, it cuts to that panel you described, Rachel, of Franklin hugging the outside of the tube she's in and her inside it. And it's kind of beautiful. So speaking of people failing to connect, back at the Baxter building, Reed is absolutely falling apart. You know, he's read what's in the journal. He doesn't remember writing it, but it seems like logically something he could have written and that he might have maybe forgotten or unconsciously believed. And man, I love the characterization of Reed Richards in this series. Like, you know, you've talked before about one of the prime features of a good crossover being something that makes you look at and interested in characters or stories that you might not otherwise have looked up. And for me, that's totally the case because I've always thought the Fantastic Four were okay interesting, but they've never really particularly grabbed me. And man, this story makes me really invested in Reed Richards as a character and nowhere in the story more than this particular moment. Like I identify with Reed Richards here so hard. About the sort of lack of confidence in his own recollection of his past? Yeah, about, well, the idea of having an evidence-based sense of your own emotions, but largely putting that stuff together by pattern recognition. And so... When other people say, you must have meant this, you must have done this, like actually, you know, pretty regularly questioning your own motives and your own interpretations of them because they're somewhat off from what's supposed to be expected and because you feel like your perception of them isn't necessarily trustworthy. Like, obviously, this specific situation has never come up, but the general sentiment is one that really, really hit home. Now, I remember when you wrote about autistic coded characters in Marvel canon, some people mentioned Reed Richards. Right. And I mean, I still feel like that's something I can't really speak to because I don't really have a lot of context for the character outside of basically this miniseries and the Hickman lead up to Secret Wars and then the sort of scattered occasional Fantastic Four stuff I've read. But in this scene in particular, I mean, that's, (laughs) yeah, kind of, yeah, pretty hard. So yeah, Reed is wandering around just trying to figure out what to do, what to even think. And he sees his son, Franklin, sort of whimpering in his sleep. Right now, Franklin's astral form is still in Latveria. And as Franklin wakes up from the nightmare, holds him and just basically comforts him and says, hey, you know, when I was scared when I was a kid, my father would read me a story. Um, Do you want me to read you a story? How about the saggy baggy elephant? And he makes his hands into stretchy elephant faces as he reads. And it's like, oh, Reed, you learned some parenting skills. Well done. Now you're going to forget all of them to go off and keep on doing super science. But, you know, it's a nice moment. It's actually a really, really important moment because what this does is this establishes Reed's human connection. It establishes his ethics, honestly. I mean, he saw a human in need and Sue is actually invisible and watching them. And she notes that he saw a human in need. He saw his son hurting and he went to help him. And that was a purely emotional thing. That was a purely human connection based thing right there. Says the author of that diary couldn't have related to Franklin the way you did. He was a man who used people, who saw them as tools. He would have responded analytically. You saw a human need and answered as a human being, from the heart, father to son, instinctively, honestly, without hesitation. That man who wrote that diary, whoever he was, isn't you. That's bullshit. What do you mean? Well, first of all, we've seen that Reed's feelings and responses to Franklin are not necessarily a universal default. You know, he does that now. He definitely didn't do it the first time Franklin had a nightmare. This is also the idea that this is something that he couldn't possibly have learned or developed or evolved over time. This is, you know, he wrote that diary, what, 10 years before? A number of years before. It's, it's, it's when he was a student and Franklin's, you know, four or six, he and Sue were married for a few years before Franklin was born. I think she's kind of reaching for excuses. She happens to be right in this case, but I don't buy that argument. Well, uh, the thing is, Sue Storm, she's a very emotionally intuitive character. And yes, I know it's a stereotype, like the female member of the team is all nurturing and emotional, yada yada. But that is something that she's always been very good at. She's always good at trusting her gut instincts to ferret out the truth, to ferret out who people really are on the inside. 
Yeah, I mean, emotional intelligence, I think, is something that's been, again, limited frame of reference, but very, very much part of Sue's characterization from the point where she was deliberately characterized. The Silver Age stuff that I've seen, she's very much got the Jean Grey problem, which is that her personality and primary motivation is that she is the girl. But as she starts to develop more as a character, that's something that I feel like she kind of comes into in her own right somewhat more. Absolutely. And so as this reconciliation is taking place, Meanwhile, in Latveria, as the X-Men, you know, train to kill time, Doom is about ready to start the procedure. So the other members of the Fantastic Four are having their own moments of doubt. Johnny Storm goes off to find his girlfriend, and he's telling her that everyone else feels betrayed and horrible, but for me, becoming the Human Torch gave my life purpose. I'm really happy. I can fucking fly, and it's rad as hell. Although that said, he's also super screwed up over having almost killed Storm. He's really uh, been shaken to his core by that. Conversely, Ben Grimm goes off to the Yancey Street pub to drink. You know, of all of the Fantastic Four, he is the one who fared by far and away the worst in the accident. The other three can pass as human. The other three basically got cool powers in addition to being human. And he kind of lost his humanity on a lot of practical levels. He can't pass as human. There are a lot of things he just can't do or be. It really affects the way people react to him. Yeah, he specifically talks about the ending of his relationship with Alicia Masters and the fact that she's now with his teammate, the Human Torch, talking about how he can't be soft and smooth and hold her, how he can't be a man. But it is really poignant. And he's, you know, just trying to get drunker and drunker. And he really can't because of his new physiology after the cosmic ray thing. And so he just sort of wanders off into the night, being really depressed, and conveniently enough, stumbles into a couple of cars on fire. Well, that's not convenient. What's convenient is that he's able to rescue a little girl who's trapped in one of them, who the police who are on site have just said, hey, we can't do anything. Lady, we can't save your kid. Tearing off his shirt in the process. Gratuitous destruction of clothing, not just for the ladies anymore. Take a drink. I'm actually really happy that there's at least one example of non-female clothing being destroyed in this miniseries. It makes me much more comfortable with it. So I was kind of thinking about this. And it happens a ton in the miniseries. And I noticed it a lot, but I'm kind of fine with it because it's almost always played as slapstick. It's almost always non-sexual. And it reads to me as sort of an almost cartoonish slapstick motif more than anything else. And I'm kind of totally down with it. That's fair. I mean, I remember reading that Anne Nascenti, who was the editor at the time, was actually pretty okay with it herself because she mentioned a lot of people had brought it up. And she's like, no, I think it's pretty harmless. You know, I think that's really largely due to Bogdanov's art, because it would have been really easy to make it just like a little bit creepy and a little bit leery, and it's really not. So after this, you know, the mother of this now rescued was going to die little girl, kisses Ben, and he holds the little girl in his arms and starts to realize, hey, maybe this whole cosmic rays accident thing or deliberate thing or whatever it was, wasn't all bad. I just did a good thing. And back in Latveria, Dr. Doom prepares to save Kitty's life with a moment of bombastic certitude. He's a character who never questions whether he's doing the right thing, this guy. Yeah, and I love as he's setting up the machine to save Kitty, he's just sort of narrating to the nearby X-Men. Is this device not a wonder of wonders, X-Men? The product of Doom's genius. Improving on Richard's original conception as only Doom can. Actualizing all its inherent potential along pathways that Richard's the fool quite naturally overlooked. I love Victor Von Doom. I feel like any Doom speech, possibly any Doom sentence, should include some variation of that fool Richards. Oh, obviously. And this one delivers. So that brings us to the final issue of the crossover, Fantastic Four vs. X-Men number four, A Matter of Faith. And the opening page here is great. It's a close-up of Kitty Pride as she narrates, as she sings to herself, I am 14, going on 15, old as I'm gonna get. Oh, you're not gonna sing it? Uh, well, I, I'm assuming she's, she's inaudible, so I'm trying to replicate. Oh, yeah, no, good call. Yeah. And man, Kitty's self-awareness here, like, okay, so for me, this is a really important miniseries for a lot of reasons. And one of those is because I think it brings us to the Kitty pride that we're going to see in the late 80s. This is her transition from being a child to not being a child, I think, was in the Kitty Pride and Wolverine miniseries, whether it was any good or not. I think it effectively did that. I think this is her transition into starting to really grow up, starting to become an adult. And starting to become kind of the adult that she's eventually going to become in the Marvel Universe. We've seen hints of that kitty and sort of how she's going to grow up, but this is sort of a tempering that's going to continue for a very, very long time. And I think part of what really helps that is Bogdanov's depiction of her, because we see in her face, in the way her body is drawn, we see a character who's clearly very young. She hasn't fully grown up yet, 
But we see this sort of sadness, this wisdom in her eyes and in her facial expressions that's just so beautifully conveyed. And she's having a rough time with all of this, you know, despite her resolve, despite her claims that she's come to terms with this. It's really hard for her. And Franklin Richards has been hanging out and staying with her in astral form. And he's trying to make her feel better by doing things like reading her the saggy baggy elephant. And he's trying to do the hand gestures. And he can't, of course, because he has stubby little baby fingers. He doesn't have Mr. Fantastic like rubber fingers to do elephant faces with. This kid is seriously the best kid. Like, okay, is he so- though? Is he the the best kid or is he trying to come off as the best kid i mean he his motives seem genuine he seems to be a genuinely well-meaning kid he does and man he comes off smelling like roses in this series like i'm not a kid person but i would totally have a kid if i knew they would turn out like franklin richards well maybe without the reality altering powers i mean mainly the, the personality there's really no non-awkward way for me to respond to that well, I, I suppose not. But regardless, we probably won't, you know, have Franklin Richards. Good, because, like, do you know how many times he's killed, like, everyone in the universe? Well, you know, they a got lot, better. They lot. mostly got better. Yeah, I don't know, man. Reality Warpers. I feel like we're doing okay with a cat for now. Yeah, probably true. I hope she doesn't have reality-altering powers. Oh my god, that would be so bad. Our cat is so dumb, you guys. <laughs> but cute. Meanwhile, while Franklin is off being a hero, Astrally and Latveria, Reed decides, screw it. I've got to do something right. I've got to, you know, try to fix this. I'll go to Latveria. I'll stop Dr. Doom. I'll try to save Kitty myself. And the rest of the Fantastic Four, having kind of gotten over their anger at Reed and sort of come to terms with the nature of their powers and their situation, decide to come with them. So the family is back together. They fly to Doom's country. Now, Magneto at this point is in some degree of exile from Doom's castle, not because he's done anything wrong, but because the equipment that Doom is using to reconstitute Kitty is incredibly delicate and incredibly sensitive to magnetism. So he's sent Magneto off to go wander around the countryside and mope while he's working. And that's where Storm stumbles upon him as he looks, you know, in the direction where Auschwitz is 500 miles away, as he looks in another direction toward Venitsa, which is the country where his powers manifested for the first time as an adult and where his daughter was killed and his wife left him after he killed the angry mob that is prevented Lat- him from saving his daughter. Is Latveria just at like the precise junction of every element of Magneto's tragic backstory? I think it kind of is. It's like that plot bus we were talking about with, you know, the X-Factor logo that Havoc didn't see. It's kind of like that. It's dramatic. Located. All roads lead to Latveria? All dramatic roads lead to Latveria. And he does his thing, what has become his thing, which is his Pictionary illustration is sort of, I am Magneto and I will PowerPoint illustrate my soliloquies using metal sculptures. And this part is great. Because he's like, okay, what can I use to make this metal sculpture of my wife and child to make my story to Storm clearer? And so he just grabs a random, what is it, Latveria android that was flying around and just crunches it into metal slag and then turns it into this beautiful statue. Magneto is a terrible guest. He kind of is. He's like, yeah, metal robot, whatever, raw materials for my story. I mean, it isn't like Doom doesn't have several thousand more of them. But his powers soon get a much, much bigger workout because the Fantastic Four's jet shows up. And Magneto, understandably, after their previous encounter, figures, oh shit, they're coming to stop Doom. I have to stop them or they're going to kill Kitty. And so he uses the full force of his magnetic might to stop the plane, which even though Doom warned him that that would not be a good thing anywhere near what was going on, he does because he figures, well, the Fantastic Four would be a bigger threat than any interference from my powers. That's actually not true at all, but Doom recognizes the threat as well. He has sent Wolverine and Rogue to go stop them. And as they're trying briefly to talk, no, it's just derailed completely by a massive superpower fight. Like you do. Right. That's actually the verses in Fantastic Four versus X-Men is basically a bunch of brief and aborted fights based on misunderstandings. You would think that by this point, the superpowered beings, especially the superpowered beings with some experience on teams in the Marvel Universe, would figure out that 99% of the time, the things they think they're fighting about are not things. That they should just stop for five minutes have a conversation, and then everything will be resolved. But no, they never do that. They never do. They just dive the hell in. Well, I mean, tensions have been pretty high. Storm got heavily burned, and Reed basically said, no, I'm not going to save your teammate. So, you know, there's a lot of anger going on. Still. So this fight happens, and, oh, wait, okay, so at one point, Rogue absorbs the Human Torch's powers, flames on, burns off all of her clothes in the process, and then becomes naked again when the Invisible Woman imprisons her in an invisible sphere, which takes all the oxygen away and puts out the fire. Oh, the fire that she was wearing in lieu of clothing. Yes. So, take a drink. And you would think that for a nigh-invulnerable character, you would develop some kind of nigh-invulnerable clothing. I mean, the X-Men wear unstable molecules, too, right? Well, as we've seen, when Sue got naked earlier, the unstable molecules are uh, not resistant to dramatic nudity. So how is Johnny not always naked when he flames back off? 
maybe he is. What, he just has a full body tattoo of his costume? That would be my theory, yeah. And he just sort of tucks, and so nobody knows. You heard it here, listeners. Canon. It's official forever. I kind of hate you right now. (laughs) Yeah. And this fight is eventually broken up by Franklin Richards. Franklin Richards specifically riding Lockheed the Dragon, because why the hell not? But also because he happened to be on the jet, and the Fantastic Four and X-Men got in this huge fight, forgetting that, you know, there was a small child in the middle, because, you know, child endangerment, whatever, it's cool. And I really love his speech. I mean, as usual, Franklin Richards is the wisest person in the room, or in the, you know, castle courtyard, as the case may be. Boy, you grown-ups are all a bunch of stupid babies. You ought to be ashamed. Kitty is fizzing away, and this dumb rumpus is making her fizz faster. Don't you know she's dying? Don't any of you even care? This dumb rumpus. The Fantastic Four and X-Men story. I think he got the word rumpus from where the wild things are. That's the only thing I can guess. It seems reasonably likely. And so they realize, oh, wait, a really good point. Let's stop fighting because our friend might die. And Doom, meanwhile, is watching all this from his Doom Tower nearby. I could easily shame them. Shadowcat's death will not be my fault. That blame is theirs. And yet, suppose, against all odds, I save her. Especially with Reed Richards looking on. What a coup to demonstrate once and for all which of us is truly the master. What delicious irony to defeat my most hated rival at his own game by playing the hero. I love that Doom is always, like, specifically heroically petty. That is his thing. Again, greatest villain in the Marvel Universe. Now... At this point, Reed blasts in and tries to stop the experiment. He thinks something's going wrong. Doom is fighting back. And Franklin once again intervenes as the voice of reason. Stop fighting. Papa, Miss Shady Kitty's awful sick. Can't you and Mr. Doom wait till later to do more yelling? And you, Mr. Doom, does it matter if Pa helps so long as Kitty gets saved? I mean, isn't that more important than being boss or proving how smart you are? Shady Kitty? Man, this child knows exactly what he is doing. This is our Franklin Richards is not really a human meat child theory coming back. I think his heart's in the right place. I mean, I think he's doing all this for the right reasons. But yeah, man, he really reads like someone trying to pretend to be a normative child of his age. Yup. And so Dr. Doom and Mr. Fantastic reluctantly, you know, being shamed by this four-year-old, agree, okay, we're going to work together and quickly realize that part of what this is going to have to be, because the machines were damaged by Magneto's power use, is Reed Richards doing a lot of the calculations instantly in his head with no margin for error. And Reed at this point just doesn't trust himself at all. He's like, you know, well, if I unconsciously decided to mutate my best friends, what am I going to do now? How am I going to scrub these calculations? I'm going to ruin everything. And as Reed's having this crisis of confidence, Kitty is fading away. At this point, she's just sort of a screaming face all wisping away inside this tube as Psylocke is pressed against it, doing her damnedest to telepathically hold the last of her together. I mean, it's clear Kitty has seconds to go. Doom suggests that Psylocke break off from this briefly to read Reed's mind and determine whether he in fact did send off his family and friends to their fate. And Reed finally decides that, no, I know myself. I know I wouldn't have done that. I'm going to do this right. I have to just go ahead. And if I give in to doubt, if I let Psylocke do this, that is just me giving in to the possibility that that's the person I could have been. And I know it wasn't. Right. And so he makes the decision that, no, he's not going to have his mind read. Because he's sure he is a good person. He would never do anything to hurt his friends. And he is good enough to save Kitty. And sure enough, between Victor Von Doom and Reed Richards, Kitty gets stabilized. So yeah, they have this big victory feast. I mean, Shadowcat's going to take a long time to fully recover. She's still in this ghostly form, but she's, you know, coherent again. She's in the form of a girl, not just sort of a, a gust of wind. And Sue Storm, who is a smart lady and pretty good at reasoning, pulls Doom aside and is like, Okay, you fucker. I thought about this, and I thought, well, who would know Reed that well? Who would have access to his stuff, and who would know exactly how to undercut him in the perfect way to make him question all of his decisions, and do it, and do it, like, with that much long game? You totally wrote that journal. You totally fucking did that. You, Victor Von, total asshole Doom. And what I love here is that as Sue is talking to Doom, he's basically just eating caviar off of the feast table, like, hey, you've got to try this caviar. Like, Oh, I, uh, I, I don't know what you're saying, but I do know that these fish eggs are amazing, Sue. You should try them. Let's not talk about this. Ha <laughs> ha, neater, neater, neater fish eggs. He's just totally, like, petty about it. It's wonderful. Yeah, he's totally stonewalling. But yeah, it's, it's very, very clear that she is, in fact, correct. And this is what happens. 
everyone apologizes across the board. And Kitty, for her part, gets to participate in the party because Franklin's dream self goes and visits her in her containment chamber and she teaches him to waltz and they high five and decide they're going to be friends forever. And it's really adorable. And this entire series is really heartwarming. It's a particularly dark era for the X-Men here in the late 80s. I mean, it's been horrible thing after horrible thing happening. And this, despite some of the carnage that occurs, is really a breath of fresh air because when it comes down to it, it's about love, trust, and family conquering all. And that's kind of awesome. Yeah, it's about trying and doing the right thing and believing in your own and other people's better nature. How much of that resolves, how much of it continues to play out is a fascinating thing to look at. Again, my main context for Reed Richards is current Reed Richards and current Reed Richards specifically coming out of the Hickman Avengers run leading up to Secret Wars. So Illuminati Reed Richards, who is making multiversally impactful and very, very ethically gray decisions for a lot of that run. And the way he agonizes over them and the way he negotiates the ethics of them is really, really fascinating. And it's especially fascinating in light of this series and having read that now. Totally. So let's talk a little bit about this series sort of as a whole. Well, it's really neat. I was not expecting to like this as much as I did. Again, the Fantastic Four has never been a book that particularly called to me. And now I'm really curious. Now I really want to go back and read more. It's also optimistic in a way that X-Men hasn't felt in a very long time. I feel like in comparison to Uncanny X-Men The Ongoing, it's also a lot tighter. Claremont in this era, I don't know, his his X-Men stories can feel very diffuse, a little bit directionless now and again. Almost like they're gradually dissolving into nothingness after a hit from Harpoon's electromagnetic spear in the Morlock tunnels. Exactly, just like that. And this miniseries, by virtue of needing to have a beginning, middle, and end, doesn't suffer from that at all. It's a complete story and very tightly written. Yeah, I talked about this earlier, but you mentioned about crossovers that part of the point of them is to give the readers from each book a glimpse into the other and what they would find and what they would pick up on in the other. I can't really see how this would have read to someone coming in from the Fantastic Four, you know, what they would glean about the X-Men from it if they weren't following that book already. But it definitely worked in the other direction for me. Absolutely. So that pretty much wraps up Fantastic Four versus X-Men. And also, we're just about out of time. So I think it's time for us to go to listener questions. Preaching to the Quentin Choir. Oh, good name. That's a very good name. Right. So Preaching to the Quentin Choir asks, have Magneto and Doctor Doom ever interacted in continuity? I ask because Scarlet Witch and Doom seem to have some kind of relationship, and I'm not 100% on what the nature of that relationship is. Did they at least get together and compare capes, maybe? I would hope so. They actually have gotten together either as allies or enemies quite a number of times. So there's this series, of course, where they do briefly meet. And there's the first Secret Wars, where they definitely overlap. That's actually referred to in this series. There's also a backup story in X-Factor Annual Number 4, a couple years down the road, where they have this sort of mind control battle using Magneto's old helmet and Doom's technology to see who's more awesome. Is that the one where they kill a little kid who turns out to be a robot? Yeah, kind of, yeah. Um, There's a story where Dr. Doom neuro-gasses the entire world to brainwash them, and Magneto goes to war with him, and they each get a bunch of superheroes on their side. And of course, they've met in lots of other stories and fought a ton in various Marvel vs. Capcom matches. Now, as for the relationship of Doctor Doom and Wanda Maximoff, the Scarlet Witch, that's actually comparatively much more recent. After House of M, Wanda actually lived in Doom's castle. She'd lost all of her memories after House of M and all that stuff, and she was in love with him. They were about to get married when Wiccan, her son who only sort of exists, showed up to find out what was going on and told her about her past, and Doom apparently had planned to keep her happy in this sort of state of ignorance and also keep the world from suffering from her powers. But also he'd planned to somehow take her powers for himself, hadn't he? He was going to try to become a god again. Yeah, and so that didn't really work out so well, so they didn't get married. Doom is really bad at ethical romance. He is. Uh, That was actually all in the Avengers Children's Crusade miniseries. It's interesting stuff. It's worth checking out. So meanwhile, Aaron asks, I forget what writer said it, but the writer made the argument that the X-Men was a school, Fantastic Four was the family, and the Avengers was a team, and that's what the story should reflect. Do you still think that's true? Was it ever true? I'm going to go ahead and say no. I think the Fantastic Four and Avengers parts are at least putatively true, although the makeup of those teams and the structure of those teams has varied a lot over time. With the X-Men, I think it's absolutely not true. It starts out sort of as a school, but it really kind of abandons that structure fairly quickly. The school is a, a very rough framing story early on. You know, it's got some of the social elements of the school, but very, very little of the rest. And while the Xavier Institute is a school, the X-Men half the time aren't even really affiliated with that. I think there are a couple reasons for those differences. I mean, the Fantastic Four are fundamentally a family. They start out as a family. It's what they stay, even as the lineup shifts. And they're also a very small, tight team. The Avengers, again, are a bunch of disparate individuals who are teaming up to save the world under this common banner. They're very visible. The X-Men, more often than not, are thrown together by accident of birth, by accident of the fact that they're all mutants. How much they have in common and how much of a common theme and mission they have 
really, really varies over time. Even early on, you find a lot of conflict over it. I'm remembering specifically the annual where Storm is, you know, talking about what defines the X-Men, and it's so different from what else we've heard. I think the X-Men are a much, much more mutable team structurally and in terms of what they represent as a group. There's obviously the mutant metaphor and mutants as a population, which tend to fall into fairly significant and fairly repetitive roles within the Marvel Universe. But the X-Men themselves as a team, I think, are much, much more flexible than either the Avengers or Fantastic Four in terms of structure and relationships. Yeah, for me, as long as they're outsiders in some way, they totally work. I think that's all you really have to have. So we are a listener-supported podcast, and some of the support tiers on Patreon come with a uh, reward of being thanked by a variety of fictional characters and or concepts. So let me turn it over to the angry Claremontian narrator. You have the means to reshape the very universe, Kevin Eckert, and yet you falter. Will you stand idly by, allowing the seeds of doubt that David LaRosse has sown to take root and tear all reality asunder? Will you? Oh, man. Yeah, that got a little bit dark. Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon. It's produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, and much, much more. And be sure to come and say hi on September 19th and 20th next weekend. Meet us at Rose City Comic Con. Our show is totally listener-supported and ad-free, and it's made possible by our generous Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to become one of those fine folks, check out the link at the top of Rachel and Miles Next week, we'll be returning to X-Factor, everyone's favorite super dysfunctional soap operatic, not actually quite mutant hunters. As we meet Julio Esteban Richter, Cameron Hodge is not subtle, and Apocalypse makes his move. (laughs) 